You know, one of the things that is really amazing about our country is that our founding fathers built into the very structure of the country the ability for subsequent generations to change it. When our country was first founded, not everyone had the same rights. Landowners had rights that non-landowners did not have. Slave owners had rights that slaves did not have. Men had rights that women did not have. But over time, uh, some of these disadvantaged people began to gain their rights. Eventually, you didn't have to own property to vote. And in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave former slaves the right to vote. And as you probably know, it was only 101 years ago that women received the right to vote. Now, you probably also realize that disadvantaged people don't just automatically wake up and, voila, they have rights now that they didn't have before. No, what happens is that uh, it sort of became an American tradition for people to ask for or demand their rights. People began to march for their rights, petition for their rights, sometimes just griping for their rights. You know, and, and so even today, you have people uh, demanding voter rights and homeowner rights and gay rights and prisoners' rights and crime victims' rights, patients' rights, animal rights, privacy rights, women's rights, men's rights, divorced men's rights, gun owners' rights, and preachers' rights. Okay, the last one I just threw in there. You know, um, I, I'm not sure there's a movement, but I'm looking to start one. You know, I don't have any complaints, so just, you know, don't want to be left out of the party. So, uh, anyway, there's one person that you never hear anyone talk about this person's rights, and it's God. You never hear anyone talk about God's rights, uh, but and you may not have ever given it any thought, but God does have rights. And, and maybe if we understood God's rights, we might be able to see ourselves the way he intended us. Take your Bible, if you have it, and turn to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, we'll look at verses 19 through 29. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 29. We're in the series called Romans, Mercy to All. And when you found Romans chapter 9, verse 19, I invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading aloud from the New American Standard Bible, and you can read along silently. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. In Romans chapter 9, verse 19, Scripture says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so 
to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called not only from uh, from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Father in heaven, I pray that you would grant us understanding of your word so that we might be changed. Speak to our hearts. Change us, Father, this day, for we yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this chapter, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul expresses his distress that many of his fellow Jews, who were God's chosen people, did not believe in the Messiah who came to save them. And it raises the question as to whether God's promises failed to come about. I mean... If God chose Israel, and some, many of Israel, do not get saved by God, then did God fail? Did God fail to keep his promise? Why aren't they all saved? And the reason that they're not all saved is is a very simple reason, that only the only people that are saved are those that believe. This is a principle, a truth, that you find throughout the Old and the New Testament, that the only people that are saved are those that believe. And so out of all the people of the earth, what God did about 4,000 years ago, God chose a man named Abraham to be the father of a nation that would eventually produce the Messiah in whom Abraham's own descendants would, would believe. And the patriarchy of this nation, it continued beyond Abraham, but it didn't continue with Abraham's first son, Ishmael but rather with his second son, Isaac. And even though Isaac was born second, he received the rights of the firstborn. Isaac, not Ishmael, the the firstborn, but Isaac the secondborn, was the child that came about because of God's promise. And Abraham believed God's promise. Then later, when Isaac was married and Isaac's wife had twins, the patriarchy of this nation that God was going to use continued. But it didn't continue with Isaac's first son, Esau, but rather with Isaac's second son, Jacob. Why did God choose Jacob, the second born, over Esau? Why did God choose Jacob for this honor? Well, it's simply because God can show mercy to the world in the manner in which he chooses. It's his prerogative. Remember, it is through the patriarchy 
of Abraham and Abraham's second son Isaac and Isaac's second son Jacob that Jesus our Savior would eventually come. And not only this was going on in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's day, but even later, God's plan to give people an opportunity to believe and to be saved continued well after their day. Some 400 years later, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's descendants found themselves enslaved in Egypt. So what did God do? God made Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful king in the world. God raised him up above all other kings. And God did this so that when Abraham's descendants were eventually freed from Egypt, the entire world would know that it was their God who freed them. It was the God of Abraham. It was the God of Isaac. It was the God of Jacob that created Israel. It wasn't Pharaoh. It wasn't a fluke of history. It was God himself creating this special nation. But first, God had to deal with Pharaoh's heart. And you might think, well, if Pharaoh's heart was just softer, if he was a little bit more understanding, maybe he would let God's people go. But instead of Pharaoh's heart becoming softer and more malleable to the will of God, Pharaoh's heart became harder. And if you read Exodus carefully, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before it ever says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what does this mean when we talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? I'll tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that God caused Pharaoh to sin. Far from it. Pharaoh was already a sinner. He was already under God's judgment. It's not like Pharaoh was just this wonderful, loving, God-fearing guy until mean old God came along and hardened his heart, turned him into a bad guy, turned him into the villain. That's not it at all. Pharaoh was already a bad guy, very bad. But the Bible, when the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it means that Pharaoh became more stubborn. Pharaoh eventually claimed that he would never let the Israelite slaves go, no matter what. Moses' God did. And just when Pharaoh's heart was as hard as it could get, God sent one final plague against him and against all the land of Egypt, the death of the firstborn of every living thing in the land. Now, finally, Pharaoh's heart was broken. And he allowed the Israelite slaves to be free. And he allowed Moses to take them away to their own land to become their own nation. And God did all of this in such a way as to leave no doubt who created this nation called Israel. (coughs) Excuse me, it was God himself. And it would be this nation that would produce the Savior. So if God wants to provide salvation to the world by showing mercy to some, 
and hardening the hearts of other people whose hearts are already set against him, then God has every right to do this. Look at verse 19 in your Bible. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? There's an eternal principle that uh, I know that you're going to agree with. And it's this. Every person is held accountable for his or her own actions. I mean, you'd agree with that, right? Every person is held accountable for his or her own actions. I mean, it makes sense. It's fair. But what about the, the parts of our lives that, that we don't have any say in? That we don't, we don't have any control in or control over? I mean, not one person here had any control over the circumstances in which you were born. You didn't control your skin color. You didn't choose the curliness of your hair. And women find this very dis distracting and distressing. Women with curly hair want straight hair. And women with straight hair want curly hair. Women with gray hair want some other color hair. Men who start losing their hair, they decide, well, it's just time to shave it all off. Hair is a big deal, isn't it? But you didn't choose that. You didn't choose anything about your DNA. And you might be able to give testimony to this. You can't choose your neighbors. Some of you have good neighbors, and some of you wish you could have chosen your neighbors. I mean, go on and on, but, you know, verse 19 isn't really about those things. The picture of verse 19 is that God is actively intervening in our lives. God is actively intervening in our lives. God is bringing things and people into our experience, and that moves us in a certain direction. We have no say over it. We have no say over it. You have no say over what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You might think you do, but you don't. Something could come out of the side that you never saw coming. You have no say in that. So here's the question. If God is making decisions that are beyond my control, then why am I accountable for the way my life turns out? It's a good question. And here's the answer, and you might not like it. God has the right to do what he wants to do. He has the right to do what he wants to do. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like Will it? And before you get upset with the idea that God has the right to do what he wants to do, let me uh, switch it around for you. Do you remember how you reacted when your kids smarted off to you? When your kids talked back to you? Or maybe it was you remember when you talked back to your parents. And every once in a while, uh, kids need an attitude adjustment, don't they? Amen, I hear it. That's what we have here. Verse 20 is a little bit of an attitude adjustment. Except we're on the receiving end. So just who do you think you are answering back to God? <laughs> Perhaps you forgot who the creator is and who the creation is. And if God decides to bring things and people into your life to mold you a into a certain way, well, that's his prerogative. 
That's his right. Verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I mean, this is obvious. So if a potter can take a lump of clay and make whatever he wants out of it, then certainly God can take sinful humanity and produce something special out of some of them. God can do that. Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay. Let's go back to Pharaoh for a minute. When Pharaoh was disobeying, which pretty much was all the time, God certainly was capable of putting, uh, pouring out his wrath quickly upon Pharaoh and Egypt. I mean, he could have wiped them out. He could have wiped them out any way he wanted to, but he didn't. He endured, God endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And we'll get to why God was patient in just a minute. But there's another question that needs to be answered. Why are Pharaoh and, and people like him called vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, is Paul saying that in eternity past that, that God chose certain people to go to hell? Is God saying that in eternity past that, that he created certain people just to destroy them? No. Let's look at this carefully, because if we misunderstand this, we'll end up misunderstanding God. First, these are called vessels, and you know what a vessel is. A vessel is something that contains something else, and so if you had a bowl that contains M&Ms, it would be a vessel for the M&Ms, and it would also be very desirable. Um, but these are vessels, okay? And now Paul is saying, what Paul is saying is that there are certain people who are vessels that contain the wrath of God. And vessels that contain the wrath of God are now currently prepared for destruction. Some interpreters believe that, that God prepared these people for destruction in eternity past. In other words, that God designed certain people to be reprobates. And that's, it's impossible for these types of reprobates to ever be saved. But that's not what this verse says. This verse does not say, if you read it carefully, that these people were prepared beforehand for destruction. It just says that they are prepared right now for destruction. That their current state is one of being prepared for destruction. You see, I believe that people like Pharaoh are vessels of wrath because they have set their hearts and their minds against God. And they have decided with finality that they do not want God's mercy. They reject God and everything about them. They have prepared themselves for, for the destruction that someday awaits them. And by the way, if you get into the weeds pretty good, you'll learn that that Greek verb prepared can be taken as a middle voice, which means... It can be taken as someone doing it to themselves. So let's get back to the previous question. God was capable of wiping out Pharaoh quickly. He could have done it. He could have spoken the word and Pharaoh died. Easy. 
Why didn't he? Why did God, with Pharaoh back then and with many people today, endure with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23 tells us, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for destruction. When God does not just wipe out those people whose hearts are hard toward Him, here's what happens. Those who receive God's mercy see how gloriously rich His character and His attributes are. What do I mean? I'll show you from Pharaoh's experience. Plague number five, the livestock of Egypt suffer from pestilence. God's mercy became evident with plague number five because God, while he was causing Egypt's livestock to suffer from pestilence, God was supernaturally protecting Israel's livestock. Listen, Exodus chapter 9, verses 4 and 6. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Why didn't God just jump right into plague number 10 and get Pharaoh to change his mind? Why did God go through all of this, one plague after another, patiently waiting for this vessel of wrath, Pharaoh, whose heart is prepared for destruction? Why was God so patient? So that God could show mercy in the midst of it to Israel. Plague number seven, the hail. Same thing here. Exodus chapter 9, verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen for the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. There was hail everywhere else. When the plague happened all over Egypt, the plague of hail all over Egypt, it didn't happen in the land of Goshen. Because that's where Israel was. Plague number nine, the darkness. This one's amazing. Exodus chapter 10, verse 23. It says, they did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel, they had light in their buildings. Think about that. There was no darkness, there was no light anywhere in all of Egypt, except for Israel. While God was pouring out wrath upon Egypt, he was showing mercy to Israel. And of course you know that it happened with plague number 10, the death of the firstborn. Exodus 11 verse 6 and Exodus 12 verse 13 says this, Moreover there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, but against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction 
between Egypt and Israel. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Every time that God showed his wrath on Egypt, he showed his mercy to Israel. That's what these verses are saying. Why was God patiently enduring all of the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh? Why didn't God just wipe that nasty old Pharaoh out? Because the more God is patient with those who hate him, the more he reveals his merciful character to those who love him. Which group are you in? You love him or you hate him? I'd point out one other thing in Romans chapter 9, verse 23. It says that as believers, we're vessels too. But we're not vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We're vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. We're containers. We are containers of mercy. And God has prepared beforehand that those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ would contain mercy. Notice that the word beforehand is not found in verse 22 when Paul was talking about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But only in verse 23 when he's talking about vessels of mercy. Because I believe that God never decided in eternity past to create certain people only to destroy them and send them to hell. The preparation for destruction is something that people do to themselves in history present, not something that God does to people in eternity past. However, something that God has done in eternity past is that he decided that believers would be containers or vessels that would be filled up and overflowing with his mercy and goodness. And why did God do this in eternity past? Verse 23 says it was for glory. God receives glory by being merciful and God shares his glory with us because he is merciful. Do you want to be a vessel of God's mercy? All you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your race is. It doesn't matter what your social status is, how much wealth you have or don't have. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Verse 24 says, even us whom also he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. I mean, this is a very powerful truth because God worked so meticulously in the lives of Israel's patriarchs and in the life of Moses and on through the centuries that the entire world, even us, would have a Savior. Verse 25 and 26 says, as he uh, says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. That's you and me, if you're a Gentile. God will call us his people, even though we weren't before. And her who is not beloved, I will call that person beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. You know, we have no right to be called God's people. But God in His sovereign mercy says that we are. 
God, what did He do? He purchased us out of slavery to sin. He purchased us out of that. And you know what that makes us? When one person purchases a slave, what does that make the slave? That makes the slave a slave to a new owner. We're now slaves to the Lord, not slaves to sin. But look at verse 26. Verse 26 says that we are more than God's slaves. God has purchased us out of bondage, and He said to us, you are my sons. Can you imagine purchasing a slave and saying, you're my child now. That's what God has done for us. What a privilege it is to be a son or daughter. Because when you're a son, when you're a daughter, you know what that means? It means you have a father. You have a father. And when you have a father, there's security there. There's love there. There's peace there. There's assurance there. There's acceptance there when you have a father. And the living God of the universe has said to us, you are my child. I am. Your father. Look at verses 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Unless God had left a remnant, we would have become a footnote in history. And even though Israel needed to be judged by God in Isaiah's day, God did not totally reject Israel. There was a remnant. There was a seed that received God's grace in Israel's day. You see, God has the right to extend mercy to people who do not believe in Him. And He has the right to withhold mercy from people who refuse to believe in Him. Any rights that we claim exist only because of God's rights. The founding fathers of our country recognized this. Listen to the Declaration of Independence. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, we have rights because our Creator endowed us with rights. And our rights are unalienable. Do you know what that means? The word unalienable means they're non-transferable. They're non-movable. They exist within us, and they cannot be taken away. That, that's why when, when one person moves from one country to another country, we, that person is called an alien. That's not a slight, because the word alien means to be moved. Alienable means to be transferable. And unalienable means that something cannot be transferred, something cannot be moved. If the rights that we have as humans came from the king of England, then they would have been transferred from the king to us. But our founding father said, no, we don't get our rights from the king of England. If the king gave us the rights, 
then he could take away our rights. Instead, all humans, they said, have rights given to them by God Himself. And they are not transferable to or from any governing body. Our rights are inherent within us. We have rights because God had His first and He made us in His image. God's rights came first. We only have rights because they are derived from Him. So God has the right to show mercy to you. And you have the right to believe in Him. God has given you that right. Nobody can stop you from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody can stop you. It is between you and God alone. It is your choice. What will you choose to do?